Okay, welcome in. Hour number two of day number two of the last days of his radio talk and Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. New program coming Monday, April 3rd, but you'll have to go online to hear it. You can go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. And you'll be able to listen live from 7.30 to 8.30. You'll be able to watch live on YouTube and Facebook. And then you can download the podcast just like you've been doing. Uh, but you can also tell other people how they can download the podcast. All right. Uh, Drew McKissick is uh, on the phone this morning. He's the chairman of the Republican Party in South Carolina. He's also the co-chair, national co-chair of the Republican Party uh, for the, the whole the whole dang country. Just every bit of it. So welcome to Drew McKissick. Good morning, sir. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, hey, we woke up on the right side of the dirt this morning. So it's yes, a good we start, did. Right? It's better. It's better than even getting up on the right side of the bed. I mean, you got to first think about the dirt before <laughs> you can even think about the bed. Um, so we just had a bunch of reorgs this past week. So so far, are we reorganizing well as a party? Yeah, so far so good. Things are going well. Turned out it's been good. Uh, you know much as I've seen, relatively speaking anyway, most dissension has been, you know, uh, kept to, uh, I guess, a minimum. Uh, you know, that's not good. what we've seen in some places in the past, so that's been good. I mean, you know, the whole point of this process is to build, uh, you know, an organization of people, I would say conservatives, conservatives of goodwill who want to work together with other conservatives of goodwill to promote conservative policies. Right. Uh, and, you know, when we're doing that properly and working together in that spirit, uh, we've seen uh, the party be productive. Uh, we've seen elections uh, won at record levels, you know, for the last 150 years here in South Carolina. Yes. Yeah, but no no success is permanent, no defeats permanent, and we have to reload every two years and get the right group of people together to continue to be successful. Yep, 88 Republicans in the House, 30 senators in the Senate, both supermajorities. Uh, Republican governor, elect, uh, governor elected this past year, uh, by the largest margin, I think, ever for a Republican governor being 30, elected. At least. Biggest margin in 30 years. That's in, right. in 30 years, yeah. And, uh, of course, every constitutional office from governor uh, all the way down in South Carolina held by a Republican. So um, that's that's pretty good success for a party getting its values communicated to the public. And we need to continue to do that as best we can. Two things I want us to talk about quickly. One is judicial reform. Sure. Uh, the attorney general is working on that. He, We're having a press conference tomorrow. I'll be down there for that to talk about the need in South Carolina for judicial reform. Uh, help people understand why uh, there are many of us who think that's important. Well, you know, the biggest and best, brightest, shining example of that, I guess, that I can give, you know, that we would all be familiar with here from the last six months of news in South Carolina is what happened with our state Supreme Court. You know, our state Supreme Court uh, overruling uh, the heartbeat bill, which was passed, you know, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, by three to two margin. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the very fact that essentially they did essentially what the United States Supreme Court did back in the 1970s, which was take it upon themselves to uh, become super legislators, if you will, uh, rather than judges, uh, I think is a shining example of the fact that you know, we need a process with more accountability built into it in terms of how judges get nominated and get elected uh, to the bench here in South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways that conservatives of you know, goodwill would have argued that maybe that ought to be done. Uh, 
Uh, I think uh, it's a broad agreement, though, that that should involve the governor in some capacity, uh, whether, say, the governor and the speaker and the president of the Senate putting forward names of people who would put forward the names of potential nominees or some formula thereof or facsimile thereof, but something with more direct political accountability built into the process as to who sits on the bench in South Carolina. Right. Well, and that's because the way that it's done now um, does not require a whole lot of transparency or a whole lot of input, um, and I think that's what we're looking for. If you look at what's happening in Israel right now, I mean, we, we, we should be reminded by what's happening in Israel how blessed we are to have a constitution because our Supreme Court makes decisions on the constitutionality of laws not on their opinion of laws. Now, sometimes they do their opinion, but they're supposed to, to make decisions based on our state constitution, if you're a state Supreme Court justice, or the national constitution, if you're on the national Supreme Court. In Israel, it's not so. The Knesset passes laws. The Supreme Court there, because Israel has no constitution, simply by arbitrarily decides whether this is a law that can go into effect or not. So right. if it's a left-wing right. court, then nothing that the Likud party with Benjamin Netanyahu as the prime minister is going to meet the approval of a left-wing court. So you see what's happening. The left is going crazy in Israel because Netanyahu simply suggested that the court should have, that the Knesset should have more input that there should be some restraints on what the high court can do. Um, and so judicial reform, I think that points to well, the need for us to make sure that our processes here remain strong and that transparency and the participation of the legislature is protected. Well, it goes back, I think, to you know what our founding fathers enunciated very well, and that is the concept of separation of powers. Uh, you know, in effect, in effect, over there, what you just described is essentially a legislature with a super legislature on top of that. Right. Uh, you know, that's not a separation of power, and that's why the process gets off the rails and has very little accountability when you don't have that separation of power. Second thing, um, there's a parental rights bill working its way through the House and the Senate uh, in South Carolina. I don't know if we're going to get there before the end of the session. But we were already there with the United States House of Representatives. They passed a parental rights bill um, that this past week. It was along party lines. Not one Democrat voted for it. And that's what I want to highlight for a second, because I want people to understand that this was not the removal of anything LGBTQ. This was not the condemnation of anything LGBTQ. This was not the condemnation of anything that had to do with Black Lives Matter or uh, any type of uh, material that would be considered questionable in the school. This was simply affirming the ability and the right of parents to weigh in, be informed, and be able to speak into what the school is doing. And the fact that not one single Democrat, the fact that no Democrat in the Senate will support it, the fact that President Biden would veto it, ought to be a flashing red sign for every American that Republicans believe in parental rights, Democrats do not. Correct. And, you know, I mean, sometimes whenever Democrats do things like you just described, like they've just done, you know, we need to take them at their word. 
if they right. say that they don't believe in parental rights, well, then, you know, we ought to take them at their word. Uh, you know, uh, folks who think that that's important, uh, that well, that lines up with their worldview, that there should be, uh, that parents do have rights when it comes to uh, how their children are raised, uh, should look at that, and they should think, you know, they probably don't believe in parental rights. I don't think we should vote for uh, Right. I mean, you know, how much... How much bigger of a sign do they need hanging over their head in terms of what their fundamental values are? Right. Uh, if you can't get to something as fundamental in terms of the rights of parents to raise their children according to their own beliefs, I, I, I don't know what else you can do. And another thing that that bill would do is make budgets transparent to parents, which is, I mean, think about it. Parents pay the tax bill for education in every state. Mm-hmm. And, yet, and yet there are those who would say, oh, but you don't need to see how the money's being spent. I mean that right. we're we're here because of taxation without representation. I mean, our forefathers right. said we're not going to have it, but the Democrats are saying, "Sure, you'll have it. We're going to make you have it." I mean, that's unbelievable to me. Hang on a second. Austin's got a question here coming. So, Drew, I'm always trying to kind of I'm, I'm I'm always kind of trying to look into the future and see what's coming down the pike. And I'm I'm interested by the fact that parents were not a recognized voting block prior to Youngkin's election in Virginia. And it was that election that actually created the voting block of parents. And so is is there any change in the political landscape that comes as a result of the Democrat Party taking an adversarial position policy-wise against parents? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I would say because the point is those issues now have come to the fore. and come to the fore. Why? Because of what Democrats have done. Uh, and it it awakened, if you will, parents, you know, whether it's policies during COVID, et cetera, uh-huh. and now a greater realization of what school boards are doing uh, with their children, with their money, et cetera. And that awareness then creates, you know, a voting block along the lines of issues. You know, it's, uh, Lee Atwater used to say issues win campaigns. You know, people pay attention to issues. People vote because of them. People contribute money because of them. People work for candidates because of them. Those issues, and now issues regarding children, parental rights, and it speeds right into that education issue, uh, it, it effectively underlines and puts that issue in you know, bold relief for the electorate, and I think it's going to move votes. Drew, it's been a pleasure uh, for quite a while now to have these conversations with you. Yes, sir. Uh, we'll continue Absolutely. them. So I'm going to find a way to do it um, with the podcast and with the live show uh, this gonna, I'm going to be doing from my living room. So we'll figure that out down the road. Uh, okay. But for now, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. I appreciate you and everything that you do for the cause, brother. I look forward to talking with you again soon. It's worth saying on a day like today, my last day in the studio, that um, I'm just a proxy for a lot of listeners saying thank you for the years of service. And I know that they're not ending. It's changing. Change is hard. You've talked about yeah, all that over the last few weeks. It's but different. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's going to be different. I mean, you, you know that you're going to lose some listeners and hopefully get some new ones and whatever. But it's but that that is a very difficult change. But we, I, and I, that we means that I'm carrying a lot of people on my back by saying that we really appreciate what you've done for all these years. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's amazing how this relationship between us started. Huh. You you were a listener. I was. You would call in. Yep. And when Hannah decided that it was just too much to have all be have all these children and have to get up so early and have to find a babysitter yep. and I mean, she was heroic. For the time that she came in, that is true. I mean, true. it was unbelievable yep. what she did yep. to be able to be here. So, um, you know, when and when that that came to an end, you know, I was like, well, do I really want to do this by myself? 
And I thought, nah. And so we talked, and here you were for a year. Mm-hmm. And then it just became too much. I mean, people who work— But do you see what that, what, you know, that te- what that says about— Now, I know that North Greenville's enabled you to do stuff like this, but, that, but, yeah. you, but you've gotten up for all these years and done— yeah, I, And 20. I know how hard it was because I— I had to do it for a started year, out when know? I was a pastor. It was very hard. Uh, I, was, I was doing it when I was pastoring the church at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church because this this show started huh. in two thousand one. Huh. Uh, we wow. started on, on April. I mean, uh, two thousand one, two thousand two, one or the other. One, two thousand one. Yeah, and it was April fifteenth. Was huh. tax day, huh. the first show that I did. Wow. Uh, and it was really. Uh, you know, not very good, very, very disjointed, very clanky. Because I, you know, thought I was Rush Limbaugh, and I was not. I was, <laughs> I was Trey Gowdy the first time he got on Fox News. So, and then oh Trey got goodness. really good, That's and hopefully funny. I got better. Well, and so I want to ask you about that. One of the things that I say um, t- about my kids and to my kids is I, I want them eventually someday to, to say, whenever they confront a situation, I want them to say, "Well, my dad always said." You know, mm-hmm. or Daddy always mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. and the only way to get them to say Daddy always said, is to always say it. Right. So often that it rings in their mind That's right. by repetition. And so on today's show, yesterday you put on a talk radio clinic and and really demonstrated for me why I've listened to you for these years, particularly when it came to the Ukraine issue, because what you did when you were talking about Ukraine, and again I'm just kind of listening through the years of why have I listened to this guy for the last ten years is you said, you know, Ukraine is um, both this, like there is this whole element where Ukraine is liberalizing, and Vladimir Putin is, you know, there is a theological component going on there. And it's also this, and it's also we need to, it's a proxy for us withholding Russia, and that comes through China, and that also has implications for China, and it's this. And you just kind of went all around the Ukraine issue and said, every there's a little grain of truth in what everybody's saying about Ukraine. To me, the ability to tease out the the truth rather than participating in the most common logical fallacy, which is either orism, and saying that either you're right or you're right, always looking for the good guy, bad guy narrative, you know, but you are able to look at them and say, you're right and you're right, or you're both stupid. Well, you know? and I've, I've tried to overcome confirmation bias, hmm. which I don't know that I'll ever completely overcome it because we're just drawn to the things that we agree with. But awareness of it helps you. It does help. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you admit that you're going to be lean toward mm-hmm. always stuff that you agree with and you don't read things that other people are saying, then you're never going to be fully equipped to engage in genuine conversation and to, to dig out the truth wherever it may try to hide itself in a situation. And that's why this new show, Truth and Politics and Culture, I think that's what we're missing is the truth. Mm-hmm. Isaiah, there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about this, and I'm going to put up on the website, mm-hmm. and I don't don't have it. I think it's Isaiah 59, uh, maybe the very beginning. But um, I know Isaiah 59, 1. Let's cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Is that the one uh, you're thinking of? No. Okay. No, that's not the one. So it must be Isaiah something else. <laughs> the Lord is not, but, his his hand is not no, shortened. No, it no, 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 no. This actually talks about the truth. It talks about uh, problems, mm. you know, what the problem is. Mm. With truth the, is the, fallen um, in the street, and there is no one to prop it up. Something like that. But it's, anyway, I'll have to look it up. I can't get to it right now. But anyway, let me just say that, because I'm going to have to go. I've got to get to the airport. But, you know, one of the best things about the show is that I've, I've I've become really good friends with you, hmm. and you you and I don't agree on everything. Uh, we have different approaches to things. It's because I'm a but, liberal. 
Yeah, because you're what? Because <laughs> I'm a liberal. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. It's because you, you, well, it's because you have a different approach to things than I do. Mm-hmm. But our core values, the things that are that root us and ground us in the persons that we are, those things are in sync. And and this is a lesson about how we get along. That's exactly it. We find the things that are most important that we resonate with. Yes. And we we link up over those things. And to me, and then the other things we try to learn from each other. You're such a Reagan Republican to me in that way. Okay. And the best of Reaganism has been on this radio show in that you know that that speak no evil of another. You know the Eleventh Commandment. That whole mojo has kind of predominated here, where you look for ways to agree. And that's I mean to me that's biblical. You pursue peace. We're not combatants. Exactly. You know, exactly. I, I look at so many within my own party, and I say, are we on the same team? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. Well, well no, you know? if, you're, if you don't agree with them, and that's what I'm saying. they've kicked you off yeah. the team, yeah. whether you realize yeah. it or not. I guess right. just one final thing I want to say, and, and, and that is that with the whole, you know, Daddy always said thing. You said on today's program, you said, well, I've said that about the wheat and the tares. I've said this a right. hundred times. And it's almost like you're apologizing for saying it again, you know. But I hope, you know, as you turn the corner and go into a new program, Keep saying the same things. I will because, and even if you preface them by saying, "I've said this a hundred times, or a hundred or thousand, I'll or keep whatever. saying the same things mainly because I'm 65 and I can't remember any of the new things that I've learned. I don't so believe I just, that for no, a minute. But. <laughs> Listen, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you filled in for me at when I was in, just really needed you. And Loved it. Always done a an excellent job. So we'll figure out how to do something together. Absolutely. In the future. Yep. Okay. Great. Take Talk care. To Ira. Uh, safe travels down to Atlanta. And Ira, thanks for holding on there, and uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Well, good morning. Yes, first I want to say congratulations to... Uh, um, my mind just went. Deep Bingold has it says his province here. <laughs> mm-hmm. To Gary, who's retiring oh, yeah. after all these years Absolutely. of wonderful service. I want to thank him. But also, um, I, I have a question. You're, you're the guru there when it comes to computers. Isn't it possible... That on, when you go to Dr. Tony Bean's website and start listening to the show and then it, it ends, isn't there links or something you could put on there so we could click another link and listen to the, the doctor program or, or listen to uh, many programs that used to be on the radio station could yes. be on his website? Yes, and and that is definitely in the cards. Ira, Tony's talked to me about that, and he definitely wants to, um, for his website eventually to become something of a clearinghouse for conservative yeah. and Christian talk radio, or, you know, what used to be talk radio. And so, yes, I think that's a great idea. I'm encouraged by the fact that you're also thinking the same thoughts, because he has had that idea. He wants Hannah's. He will, he'll, he'll, he's going to try and link to Hannah's podcast, to Corey's podcast, to Dr. Jackson's podcast. There may be some mm-hmm. others out there that he'll link to, and then also, you know, to, to kind of have a clearinghouse um, for conservative thinkers to be writing and links to articles. Yeah, so it is. I mean, I think for that reason, it's a great, it's going to be a great resource for you in some ways, maybe even better than what you could have here on the radio. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, obviously we're going to miss this format and we're going to miss several of our listeners and our ability to interact with you like this, you know. Um, So there's, there's loss associated with this transition, but I think we're also gaining some important uh, opportunities. Right. Yeah, but you had a gentleman the other day called, his name is John, and he right. called in and was upset that he was losing the station and all that, but 
you don't have to lose the station if on this one site, like you're saying, is everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely <laughs> not going to be everybody, station. but it will be some of them. And, you know, certainly the ones mm-hmm. that are within our kind of our core constituency and lo- hi- hi- highly local here. You know, we, we're really, right. really blessed to have um, the the quality of local resources that we have. You know, Corey pa- pastors a church just, uh, you know, West Greenville, and uh, Hannah's just up here in Spartanburg area, Lyman. You know, Dr. Jackson's there, uh, same in Lyman. And uh, I'm over in Easley. You know, we've got a lot of uh, high-quality Christian thought that's happening right here in the upstate. I think we should thank the Lord for it. Yes. All right, Ira. Congratulations. And that, talk to you. Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely good to, ch- good to chat with you. All right, I could talk about a lot of stuff. I could talk about France, which I really want to talk about, because if there's any way to get Austin Barker fired up, it's to be lazy. And what a poster bunch of poster children for laziness in France. Oh, my goodness. Come on, they helped us win the revolution. They didn't... I don't, I'm not. I'm not totally convinced. But I think that that one guy did, but I think he was actually German, Baron von Steuben. Lafayette. I don't know the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette. Yeah, yeah. Lafayette. Okay, so there's a, a, a there's an occasional good, decent Frenchman out there, but that's by far the exception to the rule. And my uh, te- most tepid apologies to anyone that's offended. Tepid because I don't know that I'm really persuaded that I'm actually apologizing. But anyway, uh Maybe I'll talk about that, or maybe I'll write about that and post some of my thoughts about about that on Tony Beam's website. I could, I wanted to talk about Israel a little bit, but I don't have time, because that's a really interesting dynamic over there, and Tony kind of got to it in the conversation with Drew McKissick about the whole separation of powers and constitutional this and democracy is under threat, because I have a hard time taking people seriously when they say democracy is under threat, because apparently it's like the climate. The climate is, you know, we have 12 hours left to live, and so... And or you know, democracies under this, those sounds so alike to me that it's just this uh, alarmism. Uh, what's the actual word? Fatalism. You know, things are terrible and they're as bad as they could possibly be. And I'm just like, yeah, that's what you said 20 years ago. Um, but I don't have time for that. I want uh, social media is in the news. TikTok particularly. You know, the CEO of TikTok came up and just absolutely got his hat handed to him by uh, by a congressional committee. And uh, they weren't having it. Democrats and Republicans. Jamal Bowman's comments notwithstanding, this is a pretty bipartisan opposition to TikTok. And maybe we have different reasons for opposing it, but it's pretty unanimous that TikTok is uh, from below. So, but social media more generally, again, there's a growing consensus. And this, this is one of those rare issues that is not cloven by politics. By political allegiance, there's a growing consensus that social media is harmful on its face. That it is not good. It is not a good way to do to be human. Is virtually, and the 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 incentive structure of social media is harmful to humans on its face. Like it makes us want bad things. It makes us want to do bad things and to be a bad version of ourselves. And I think more and more people are recognizing that. So this article that I want to share with you, and I'm going to read a fairly sizable portion of it, and I think I can do that entirely in this segment, and then we'll come back in the next one and comment on it. And you're welcome to call in and tell me what your thoughts are about Brian Matson's thoughts. This was written in his Substack, um, and I believe the, the actual... Um, domain is called the square inch, which is basically a reference to all the many varied square inches 
of God's domain. So it's about Christianity and culture. So he starts off by saying, um, years ago, I made the decision to keep my Facebook and Instagram circle very tight. I accept friend requests, says Brian Madsen, from actual friends, people I have met in real life or had some significant personal interaction with, either online, elsewhere, or at a public event. Other friends of mine, some with a fairly high profile, take a different attitude and have thousands of Facebook friends who are complete strangers. Now, this is a difference between Tony Beam and me. I think I have 151 friends on Facebook. He has 151,000. And that's fine. Just there's a difference between in, in philosophy there, okay? And, and I'm not criticizing Tony because he's not guilty of what most, many people who do that, who accept friend requests from anybody, are guilty of. And, and Brian will point that out, okay? So the result of these... Um, of these having thousands of Facebook friends who are complete strangers, you don't know who these people are, and they're not friends. My criteria is that I only accept a Facebook friend request from somebody whose cell phone number I have. Okay? The result is that when they post something, their comment section blows up with dozens of strangers wanting to debate or pick fruitless fights with them. I don't know how they have the patience or tolerance for it, but I do know that I'm delighted to have chosen a different path. I simply do not believe that social media is at all a fruitful medium for thoughtful debate or conversation. Rare is the time when I follow a Facebook argument and feel edified by the end. I generally feel the need for a shower. So, my Facebook and Instagram is solely for my originally advertised purpose of keeping in touch with my friends and family. That's what we started social media for, right? Was just to, you know, see pictures of the grandkids. Yeah. And stay in touch with family who are separated by geography. It has morphed into something else. I want to see photos of their vacations, what they're eating for lunch, or the cool foam art the barista put on their cappuccino. And now you know why you haven't heard back from me if you sent me a Facebook friend request, but we don't know each other. So that's right. That's me too. Some of the listeners to this show sent me a friend request. And while I was on the show, I accepted those. And then I unfriended you, not because I don't like you, but because I have a criteria for my Facebook. And it's if I don't have your cell phone number, I don't, I'm not friends with you on Facebook. So if I'm not friends in real life, I'm not friends on Facebook. Let's just keep it consistent. So Twitter, says Brian Matson, was a different story, though. I had no control. That's important. You have no control over who followed me or interacted. And I found myself chirping back and forth all the time. And then a year and a half ago, there's a little bit of humor here, Twitter suspended my account for properly gendering someone. Well, Twitter called it misgendering, but properly gendering someone and didn't give it back to me. I haven't tweeted since. And you know what? I came to realize very quickly how social media had been affecting me and my life. The sheer stress of arguing with strangers, arguing with strangers, the elevated blood pressure, the real estate in my head that was taken up by thinking about what someone said about me or to me. Little of it was healthy, and this is in italics, and I was a very moderate Twitter user. Just imagine what it would be like if you were a regular or an active Twitter user. Don't get me wrong, I don't have a problem with the concept of social media. It can be an immensely helpful tool. Twitter certainly was for me. But I do think that as a society, we are not wise. That is the whole thesis of his entire article. We are not wise users of this technology. And my point, Austin Barker's point, is that I don't think we can be. I don't think that the medium lends itself to wisdom. 
or wise living. So Brian Matson says, I do think that as a society, we are not wise users of this technology and not at all self-aware of its pitfalls. In a fallen world, all solutions have downsides. And so if you think that this is going to be a pure good, you will live your life with, you will drive with square wheels. It'll be a very clunky way to live. I said I was going to read the thing and, and, and comment. I'm like, Corey, I can't read without thinking, and I can't think without talking. <clears throat> Sorry, Corey. In fact, we are to a large extent poisoning ourselves. And as the headlines these days tell it, our enemies are intentionally feeding us that poison. This is too big a topic to cover adequately in a single article, but I would like to connect a few threads. First, TikTok. The company CEO went in front of Congress a couple days ago to assure us that the Chinese Communist Party has nothing, nothing at all, nothing, nothing to see to do with TikTok. The parent company, ByteDance, does have CCP associations, but that's all, you know, compartmentalized. Heh. Nope. Even so, many people fail to see what the big deal here is. Let me take a stab at it. TikTok is essentially a data gathering operation for the Chinese Communist Party. Millions of handheld devices sending our personal information to a hostile foreign government. But it is so much more than that. It is a new form of the ancient art of psychological warfare. Nations have always had an interest in influencing enemy populations. We used to pump the airwaves behind the Iron Curtain with Western Radio. You remember that, Air America? Attempting to stir the population and win them over with ideas. TikTok is the same idea, only on steroids. They actually glue the radio to every person's actual physical hand. They have designed a highly addictive app with algorithms that help shape and reinforce one's actual perspective on the world. Ask yourself a question. Why does that account libs of TikTok have so much material of psychotic school teachers bragging about queering their students? There's an incentive structure here. Think like an economist, okay? Why do liberal teachers keep posting their videos when they know they're going to end up posterized on libs of TikTok? Well, it's because, says Brian Madsen, those teachers are obviously TikTok consumers and producers, and somehow that they've come, they've come to believe that their grotesque rantings are normal. How? Because TikTok and other social media platforms have encased them in that bubble of discourse. They've siloed themselves. And then, having shaped this warped view of reality, TikTok can then weaponize it. How? TikTok shows all that content to people like libs of TikTok so that they can then broadcast it to their followers and gin up outrage. So you have liberal teachers querying their students, posting videos for their followers saying, this is good. Isn't that good? Amen. And then you have other people on the other side of the issue who are seeing that and saying, isn't this terrible? This is horrible. Our country's going to hell. Do you see the incentive structure there? They are fomenting division. Let's see, who could stand a benefit by Americans being divided and hyperpolarized and angry and outraged all the time? Hmm, that's a good question. Question worth, that worth asking. So, because, da-da-da-da-da, let's see. The whole thing is designed to foment civil discord, to give us all the impression that our cultural or political opponents are all crazy or evil. And this goes both directions, left and right. And this highly exaggerated has, uh, uh, impression has been deeply internalized on the fringes of both sides of the political spectrum. That is 
one of the streams feeding into this river of hyper-partisan and hyper-polarized thinking that has painted every single issue, every single organization, every single idea, red or blue. Okay? We've color-coded our society, red and blue now. And that's one way that we've done it, is feeding in to this outrage machine. And listen, there are things to be outraged about in our culture. There are. There really are. There are some really, really evil people doing some really, really evil things. Okay? We saw one of those yesterday morning in Nashville. It does not help to pretend like everything is that. If you're angry about everything, and if you live your life angry, then when everything's a nail, or when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay? And so we just come out swinging against every single idea. Yeah, Peter's over there pounding. Good, good. Got it. Um, all right. So uh, let's see. I- I'll come back to this. So he wants to, I'm going to pick up a second thread um, about social contagion. Okay, so this is Brian Matson's article about um, the, the problem, the essential, and by essential, I mean at its very essence, the, es- the essential problem of social media. All righty. Second thread says Brian Matson. social media has been a conduit and a catalyst for social contagion. And he references an essay here um, that I need to go out and read. He said, Helena, in this essay, it tells the story of a young woman who tells in excruciating detail how she came to decide that she was actually a boy. And it was online social media ecosystems like Tumblr that provided the plausibility structure and space for the social imaginary that made it possible. And recently he was reading, he was listening to Megan Phelps Roper's podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, and the same issue came up again. The trans community so up in arms at Miss Rowling is a product of social media e- ecosystems. Tumblr was mentioned again explicitly, and TikTok is a variation on the theme. Okay. Third thread. Do you know who else listened to the Rowling podcast and noticed the same thing? Professor Jonathan Haidt. He's got name-checked on this program a bit before. Okay. Very, very insightful social or sociologist he has he he according to brian mattson he wrote a bombshell essay why the mental health of liberal girls sank first and fastest please he says take the substantial time to read it suffice it to say as a society we are plummeting into depths of depression and ill mental health and not only does height connect it to the rise of victimization and the crisis of responsibility he connects it to our social media usage i listened to jonathan height being interviewed on russell moore's podcast and both of them concluded that the rise in the mental health issues um corresponds uncomfortably closely with the proliferation of social media. Okay? Banning TikTok would be a fine thing, in my view, for the foreign spying and influence factor alone for the threat to national security. But it is hardly, but banning TikTok is hardly a panacea for what ails us, because that is primarily a cultural, not a technical technological matter. There are more debates to be had, like, should we raise the legal minimum age for obtaining social media accounts? Christine Rosen says yes. Ban the kids. I'm not sure how that would work practically or legally, but I am sure of this. This is so good right here. Get this. If your kids have smartphones with Snapchat or TikTok or a host of other social media apps, you are a parent with a very high risk tolerance. I can't I don't think I can adequately express how down on that idea I am. 
Exactly. You can read Height's essay full of charts and graphs and figures that there's a correlation between social media usage and teenage depression doesn't really seem up for debate. That's what this author is saying. Okay? If you do the math, you will get the right answer. Just look at the numbers. Okay? That, cor that correlation is inescapable. But... And this is, I can't believe that he ends the essay on this paragraph. He, this must just be the prequel to another essay that, he's, that, he, that he either has written, is going to write, and definitely needs to write. He says, I have an inkling that it isn't just the kids. I think we are all far more depressed than we ought to be. And it might just be because we're on our phones, encased in an online ecosystem and arguing with strangers. What? What are you over there raising your arms up in the air about? You're not going to answer me? I'm talking to my son, my 12-year-old. My are you 12? Going on 20? Um, yeah, he, he knows. Peter knows that um, phones are a real problem in our house, and, and they're a problem for me. It's addictive, and that's, I mean, again, you have companies out there that are not pursuing the good life for you. Okay, this, this glowing rectangle I'm holding here is not um, where happiness is found. But you wouldn't know that if you just followed the science of the thing, because there's so many dopamine hits that I get off of this little glowing rectangle in any given day that it just keeps me coming back and coming back and coming back. It's almost like I can't help myself. Isn't that crazy? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not absolving myself of responsibility because it is a choice. I do have a choice. But, but the design of the thing, by, it is not a bug of the, tech, uh, of the technology we're using that it is so addictive. It is a feature of that system. It is designed that way deliberately. The, the mental health issues that emerge or that result from regular use of social media particularly the more ick, icky ones. And I don't think I'm just saying they're icky because they're used by a certain generation. I'm not really keen on Facebook, okay? I don't get on there very much at all. But I'm way, way more down on TikTok and Snapchat. Okay, I just think that in the same way that your grandma always said, nothing good happens after midnight, nothing good happens on TikTok. Nothing good happens on Snapchat. Okay, anything that is good, by any de by any meaningful definition, you could find elsewhere without the downside. All right, there's just nothing worth going there for. Twitter will suck your soul. Elon Musk's efforts to reform the thing, notwithstanding, he hasn't reformed the essential component of it. It is still essentially the same. He tweaked it and made it more free speechish. But that's not what's wrong with Twitter, essentially. The, what's wrong with Twitter, essentially, is 140 characters. And the compression of thought, and the, and the stifling of deep thinking, and the own-the-libs mentality that it plays into, that all that, you know, gotcha argumentation, those gotcha questions like, boom, mic drop, I owned you, that whole mentality is essential to Twitter. You can't say the meaningful and 
deep and nuanced things that need to be said on any topic on Twitter. So the thing is bad by definition. It is essence. Okay? And I think that Brian Matson is really on to something here. And it's, I mean, it hits me too, a little bit. The, the next article that he's going to write, the one where it's not just the kids, yeah, we make much, and we should, of, of, of how social media is victimizing young teenage girls and the social contagion component that goes on there and all the body image and the bad anthropology that happens on, I'm just using TikTok as a stand-in for social media generally, because it was, it was bad on Instagram. But it, but, it, but it hits us as adults, too. Go to the mall sometime. Go to, don't go to the mall. That'll suck your soul, too. Go to, um, where can I tell you to go that doesn't suck your soul? Let's see. Uh, go, to, go to a Bob Jones uh, Shakespeare play sometime and just stand around in the foyer and look and see not how many teenagers and college students are on their phone. That's ubiquitous. But unfortunately, it's ubiquitous for 40-year-olds like me that this thing just jumps into my hand. It seems like every week I check my, what's that little app thing that gives you your analytics at the end of the week that tells you how long you've been on? And on Sunday, every Sunday at 9 o'clock, my phone chimes and gives me this report. And I always kind of dread looking at it because it seems like for weeks in a row it said, you spent 15 minutes more on your device this week than last week. And it's that way every single, it's, it's like, that's not sustainable. I can't continue to live like that. Pretty soon I'm going to be, oh, walking around with a VR headset, living in a completely virtual world. I, and, and that sounds like a joke, except it's not. It's like tomorrow. Yeah, we've got to we've got to address these. To me, this is way this is this is what's be what's back of mass shootings. This is what's back of transgenderism. This is what's back. If we could solve these upstream issues, if we could solve these pre pre precursor issues, then I'm not saying it would totally solve, but I think it would go a long way toward solving some of the other downstream issues. All right. Is that your third? Are you about to wave 30 seconds at me? Let me just take a minute and wish Gary happy retirement. I don't know that I'll be in here the rest of the week. You'll be with Hannah uh, in Corey Truax's Capable Hands tomorrow with Tony Beam. And then Hannah Miller will make her cameo on Thursday. And Lisa Van Riper will be here on Friday. It's going to be a good farewell tour. Make sure you call in sometime this week and thank Tony Beam for what he's done for us. And then tune in as we turn the corner to a new format. Have a good day. Tuesday.